we're probably going to be dealing with the situations in this chapter for about three weeks. I'm trying to plan out what it's going to look like to finish up. I know you may think, well, we're not really making much progress through this book. So we're probably going to do about three weeks here because of everything that's under consideration. Uh, this chapter is just, there's a lot to it. Thank you, sir. So if you wouldn't mind, let's bow our heads first. Let's pray. We'll jump in. Father, thank you for um, our time in the book of Deuteronomy. And we're praying, God, that it's beneficial to our encouragement and uh, makes us think critically about where we are in life and uh, especially upon uh, the profound abundance of mercies uh, that you've shown to us. Please uh, help us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. So Deuteronomy 9. And the idea in this chapter, we got done with Deuteronomy 8, which we saw is in a chiastic structure. And the theme going through is the heart, the heart, the heart. We've seen it in chapters 4, 6, 8, and 9. The heart, the heart, the heart. In fact, something that I've started doing as I'm going through the book of Deuteronomy, and I usually don't do this just because I, I don't like it. Uh, but every time I've found the word heart, I will circle it with my pen and I will highlight it so that it pops out to me. We're dealing with the heart. One of the first things I want you to notice about Deuteronomy 9 is that in verses 4 and 5, we are still dealing with matters of the heart. Now, here is the question. The question. Question? Question. Here is the question. Why is Moses constantly dealing with the condition of their heart. Why? Did everybody get a paper? Anybody else need a paper? Everybody good? You can get one. Why is Moses constantly going for the heart here? Yes. There you go. It's because our heart is ultimately what leads us. The heart is what has to be convinced in order for the behavior to follow. What's that? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately weak, wicked, Leland says. And remember, God knows if you want to see change happen in your life and change happen in your culture, change happen wherever it is, if you want to see change take place, the Word of God has got to have a primary importance and be constantly taught, spoken of. Uh, we, we talked about how the Spirit is a wellspring flowing out from inside of us of living water the word of god should be bursting out of us as far as how we live life uh colossians three sixteen. but let the word of god dwell in you richly it needs to find its home in every one of us and be a constant structure by which we're doing everything else everybody remember in deuteronomy 6 Speak of it when you lay down, when you walk by the way, when you stand up. Doesn't matter where you are. Doesn't matter your posture, where you're going. It needs to be decorated all over your house. It needs to permeate everything. Now, some people will go, well, that's overkill. Some people will go out and spend three times as much as they should on all kinds of furnishings from a Christian bookstore uh, in order to fill their house up with that stuff. Some of you might think it's littering your walls with Thomas Kincaid paintings. I don't know. But the whole idea is that everything around you needs to be completely drenched in what God has said. Now, if that seems like overkill to you, I ask you to think about how much influence the philosophies of this world have on you. 
or have in general. Let me give you a primary example. Some people complain that church lasts too long. Not here. But some people complain that church lasts too long. Maybe Jeremy preaches too long. Well, Sunday school is too long. Well, we got to get out by this time. But we don't have any problem putting our children on a bus with somebody that they don't know and taking them to a place where we haven't vetted everybody that they're sitting under. And they've got eight hours of day of all kinds of teaching where God's not brought up once. Tell me if we're off kilter. You see what I'm saying? The world has its influence. And this is something we have to remember. Whenever Jesus describes Satan as the prince of this present age, as the God of this world, little g, God of this world, it's straight out of the mouth of Jesus. When he uses the word world there, it's the word cosmos, okay? And it doesn't just mean planet Earth. It actually means the way that the world has been designed and systematized. The reason is, is because the word cosmos means to put in order. Now let me give you an example. When we talk about that you ladies use cosmetics, why is that? It's because you are putting your face in order before you walk out the door. Now that sounds strange, but it's true. There is a systematized way in which you are making yourself presentable with the products that are given to you. If you don't believe that to be a true argument, I guarantee you that you have the same pattern always. I'm going to do my eyes first, I'm going to do my cheeks next, I'm going to do my lips next. You have this like regimen that you go through for those things. It's all designed and systematized so that it produces the results it was intended to produce. Let me tell you this. Satan is a master at cosmetics. He is a master in the order of how he wants to put things together because he has done an incredible job of leading people away from God. So this is why the heart has got to be convinced with truth so that the difference starts taking place from the inside out. Everybody with me? Okay, now, chapter 9, verse 1. Hear, O Israel, you are crossing over the Jordan today. Now, I will admit this. I don't know if at the time he was giving this speech is what it is, and it seems to happen time-wise over the period of a month. If he is talking about day as in general vicinity of the day, or if he's talking about actually on this day we are going. Uh, I don't think he's talking about the latter. I think he's talking about uh, the one before, the prior. Uh, there, Jordan today, to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, great cities fortified to heaven. In other words, strong, sure, built, everybody's more than you, everybody's bigger than you, everybody has a better army than you, everybody has better weapons than you, and they have resources all over the place. You're getting ready to go in and take it all. Now, it is a little scary. You can imagine if people are shaking in their sandals at this point. But notice what they've seen about God. God can do this. In fact, if you want to write down this verse, chapter 4, verses 37 through 39. Moses has already dealt with them about the greater and mightier nations that they're going to come against. And notice the idea of dispossess. Has anybody been dispossessed lately? Have you ever seen the bank dispossess someone from their car? It's a little sudden, isn't it? It's a little frightening. It's abrasive. It's jarring. Notice that. People were all living comfortable in the land. 
sacrificing all these pagan gods and doing all these weird things, and all of a sudden here comes Israel, who, I mean, think about it, they're, they're brick makers by trade, is kind of what they've got going on in their culture, who've had no military training whatsoever, and they're going to come in and overthrow these seven great nations that are residing in this place completely, desolate everything. That's one of those right kind of moments. But God can do it, and God will do it. Look what he says here. Verse 2, a people great and tall. Now think back to what we studied before about Deuteronomy. Look what it says. The sons of the Anakim, who you know, and whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak. Now does everybody remember the sons of Anak, the Anakim? Who are they? They're giants. Everybody remember the, the pictures that we saw that Catherine Fick brought of some of the bones that they have unearthed in archaeology? It doesn't even look real. Except, there, and notice there is no like missing link, half ape, and all that stuff. Notice that that's not the case at all. Notice that it's actually human beings that were just huge. So when we have such things as, no, Goliath was nine feet tall and his spear weighed this much and all that, the Bible's not lying. The Bible's giving you facts to verify that it's true. In fact, here's an interesting thing. Put your finger here and turn with me to Numbers 13.33. Numbers chapter 13, verse 33. And this is when the spies are reporting and they decide they're going to give a bad report to the people and not trust the Lord and try to lead the people astray by what they tell them instead of going in and conquering the land. And look what he says here in 30, what they say in 13.33. There also we saw the Nephilim. Okay, we're familiar with the Nephilim, right? Because it freaks us out. Genesis chapter 6. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. Now if you remember, there's two explanations for that. If the Nephilim were in Genesis 6 and the flood happened, how did the Nephilim make it on the other side of the flood? Uh, my reasoning here is that they didn't. I think that the reason why we see this here is because the ten spies that are trying to give them the bad report are trying to relate them to something that was previous or pre-flood in order to scare the people to death into not going over. I think that they are relating them together as the Anakim are part of the Nephilim or it's just relating the fact that they are giants as the Nephilim were giants. The Nephilim didn't make it through the flood. God destroyed everything. Jamie. What about Goliath? He was a giant. Doesn't necessarily mean he was part of Nephilim. Not all Nephilim are giants. Not all giants are Nephilim. Or maybe all Nephilim are giants, but not all giants are Nephilim. We wouldn't conclude that Andre the giant was a Nephilim. Or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Everybody see how that works? So, what's that? Okay, just making sure. All right. I like it. So Deuteronomy 9, go back, and notice the idea here. Moses kind of isn't doing these people any favors by the way he's going on and on about them. At the end of verse 2, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Notice that's their reputation throughout the land. No one can come up against them. They're huge. Why would you even want to bother trying to fight? They're going to win. You know this. Verse 3, here's what he says. I love it. Know therefore, and as good people who study the Bible, we ask the question, what? Why is that therefore? because of the reputation that these giants may have, because of the insurmountable odds that face you, and yet God is calling for your obedience regardless of what you see. See, this whole idea of we walk by faith and not by sight is so much greater than sometimes we give it credence. 
when we view the situation before us, we say, this is hopeless, and this is helpless, and this almost seems futile to be messing with it. With God, there's always a way. Let's not discredit him or count him uh, uh, coming up short in some way. He never does. He is our Father. We have to remember that. I'm sure if a father tries to do anything, or something that I've tried to do with Nathaniel, at least in my limited experience, is never let him down. Try not to disappoint him. Never lie to him. Because that will come back to bite you later. God is your heavenly Father. Involved. Because of who He is and because of the crazy circumstances you may see, know therefore today that it is Yahweh, your Elohim, who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. Now, if you've experienced a house fire, I'm sorry. But those emotions aside, raise your hand if you think fire's pretty cool. When you, I, like, let's be honest. All of us wouldn't mind it if we're behind some sort of plexiglass and somebody just takes a rocket launcher and blows up a car. That's awesome. That is awesome. There's something about that where you go, yeah! There's a reason why people go to the Rambo movies. It's not for the storyline. Unless you went to the last one when he goes in and saves the missionaries. It was awesome. We go for the explosions. As men, we love the explosions. We want to watch the explosions and eat beef jerky while it's going on because it's awesome. Our God, notice how it words it. It says that He is crossing over how? Before you, which means what? What? He's going to take care of business. Man, that is the great way to say it. How many people have mowed in your life? Mowed, mowed the yard. Anybody ever had to get the mower out and mow high grass? Right? And you've got it set on like level two. And what you should do is get some stilts to put your mower on to make it through this mess you're getting ready to take it through. But one of the things that we like about it is when you mow through that heavy grass and you turn around and you look back and it's all grown up on the side, but man, it is nice and pristine right down where you were, wasn't it? You just cleared a path. This is what we're talking about. Fire and clearing a path. God is going to go before you and take care of business. Why? So that you can easily walk in behind Him and do what you need to do so that the job is done. Like the Red Sea. Clearing a path. God, there's no way this is going to work. Have you seen these nations? Sometimes you wonder if God's like, call a spiritual timeout, guys. There was this sea. And you were getting ready to get killed. And I opened it. And you walked through. And you saw it. Now this is important. Keep all these things with you. Keep all these things with you that we're thinking about here. About what God is able to do in crazy difficult circumstances. When it seems all is hopeless. Because this is exactly where Moses goes with this idea. Notice he is a consuming fire. He will destroy them. And he will subdue them before you. Now watch that. That's what he's going to do. And look what it says after that. So that, which so that tells you what? 
We talked about it two times today. This is giving you the reason, right? So that, here's the reason why he's going to do that. You may drive them out and destroy them quickly, just as Yahweh has spoken to you. In other words, he's going to come in and start clearing that path, and you are going to do your part that you were commanded to do, and be obedient with it, so that he brings his promises to perfect fruition. Yes. 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 And here's the reason why that's so neat. Roxanne brings it out. And it sounds kind of obvious when you say it. Isn't it neat that the Lord's going to subdue? Yes, because if the Lord was not involved in the trying situation, they would not be subdued. Subdued. It would be like the whole situation in I when they went in to go capture I later on. But because they had disobeyed God and Achan was holding on to idols that were buried in his tent... The Lord was not with them, and that's why they were defeated. What in the world is that? Yeah. What are those slow jams you're listening to? Whenever you're ready, Steve. You good? Everybody was so scared to death they killed each other. <laughs> Did anybody see that battle plan coming together like that? No. But that's because the battle belongs to the Lord. Exactly. There is everything to be said about leaning full weight into what God's promise has given you. I mean, notice the end of verse 3. Look what he says. Just as Yahweh has spoken to you, you know what that means if you want to write it in your margin? According to His Word. According to His Word. You didn't see an image when He spoke to you from the mountain. It was His Word that He spoke to you. You don't need to worry about casting any graven or molten images. It's His Word that you need to have before you. God's character is all held to His Word. In fact, isn't it when people break their Word that all of a sudden you don't want to have as close of a relationship with them? That's the problem. That's really what it comes down to, is, is everybody's got trust issues. This is what makes us such a cynical society. Everybody's got trust issues. You can't trust anything anybody said. Let me, let me rail on this for just a second, and if you're not aware of it, you need to be aware of it. Has anybody seen what the recent admissions, I think it was of the Pope, had made about the Catholic Church in regards to abortion? You can ask my wife. When, when, when my wife was working where we lived in southern Indiana, she worked for a private Catholic school. They are pro-life. They make Christians look shameful how pro-life they are. It's almost an embarrassment of how they are advocating for the rights of the unborn. However, the recent report that came out from the Pope and what he admitted was, is that yeah, priests for years have been spending all this time getting nuns pregnant. And the way that they dealt with the pregnancy was they the nuns were mandated, you will get an abortion. And everybody got mad at Sinead O'Connor in 1991 when on Saturday Night Live she said, fight the real enemy, and she held up a picture of the Pope and she ripped it in half. Frank Sinatra said he wanted to beat her for doing that. She was calling out about that 30 years ago 
because of sex abuse scandals within the church. And everybody booed her and hated her. And she is in a mess of hurt now. I don't know if you know who she is. She's an, she's got an incredible voice. She's an amazing singer. Incredible. But she is in all kinds of bouts of depression, is converted to Islam, all kinds of crazy things. She grew up Irish, so she's automatically got that Catholic influence in her life. But she looked at these atrocities and she dared speak out about it and she suffered the ramifications for doing so. Guess what? We're now all unearthing and condemning the church for doing the very thing that she said years ago. So you actually have the followers of this movement who actually end up being more moral and upstanding and in alignment with God's word than their leaders are. If these priests were allowed to get married in the first place, we wouldn't be having all these problems. But they're married to the church. Guys, newsflash, I'm not trying to be crass. The church doesn't put out. I know that sounds weird. It doesn't. And I think that's something we need to understand is that when, when Paul gives clear commandments about the sexual relationship that's supposed to happen within the confines of a husband and wife and how you can tell whether or not you should be, ba- should be married or not is based on whether or not you want to have an intimate relationship with somebody. Right? It's very, better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul can't get any more clear than that. And yet we've got a whole segment of people that are supposed to be the most revered and spiritual authority in all of the world coming out of Vatican City. And what are they saying? Priests can't get married because they're married to the church. Well, you can only do that so long to somebody before sin strangles them to death. You know, that's okay because his bones are in three different places. Go ahead. It's true. It's true. When I was in Ukraine, and we, we were walking, in, in I will never do this again, we're walking underground around the catacombs of the Eastern Orthodox Church, and people are kissing dead bodies, praying. and It's odd, man. I mean, these rotten bodies are down there. Uh, and they were like, hey, you want to go over here? Jude's skull is in this room. I'm like, no. That's weird. Anyway, go ahead. Mm-mm. It's insane. Guys, go ahead real quick. I'm sorry. Hmm? It could be understood as the fact that they are that God is working through them to destroy them. That they are actually, because here's what you find, especially like if you, let me think here. We were dealing in Habakkuk not too long ago in hermeneutics class. And God talked about, I'm going to do something that if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. I'm going to send uh, the Babylonians in, and they are going to be my instrument of discipline for Israel. Well, God doesn't condone their pagan acts as a culture but he can use them as his disciplinary tool uh, for people who have sinned. He can do that. Well, I don't think it's any different from this. I think what we're seeing here, and we actually find this later on in the chapter, in chapter 9, God's very clear. Israel, it's not because you're righteous that I'm calling you in to take over this nation. It's because these people have sinned. And he actually tells Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. I am using you as my disciplinary tool to judge these people because of their defilement of this land. So it's, it's very interesting how, how God um, removes from them any sense of entitlement. It doesn't give them the opportunity to puff up pride. Well, our God's working with us to conquer you guys, and you guys are more, but we're less, but we have God. And he's like, no, 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 no. It's, it's, it has nothing to do with anything in you. In other words, he's pointing out their utter depravity and saying, I'm using you as an instrument in my hand to paddle these people. 
So here's what I would say is, is, as long as they are obeying him, as we see the pattern throughout Scripture, when they're obeying him, he is fighting with them. When they disobey him, he does not fight. And that, that seems to be contingent upon this covenant. This contract, remember, when we see this covenant, this contract that is made with Moses, the law that's given, it's an if-then thing. It's a contingent contract. If you will obey me, then I will bless you. If you will serve me, then I will rescue you. If you will be faithful to me, I will be faithful to you. But if you are not faithful, I am under no obligation whatsoever to lift a finger to help you at all because you have decided that you are better off without a king over you. That's the whole idea. Yes. It's very possible to do that. Just to, to put fright in them. That, that could be possible as well. Now here's the thing, and, and you bring that's very interesting. Whenever the spies go and they talk to Rahab in Jericho, one of Rahab's first words are, we've heard what your God did to Egypt. Forty years had passed. Okay? But for some reason, that was still front page news to these people. And they were all quaking in their boots about what Yahweh could do. So their whole, their whole mindset there was consumed with this idea of, I hope they don't come this way, right? It's not because they were scared of Israel. It's because they knew what their God could do. So that news had traveled. I think it's kind of odd that for 40 years, Israel wanders in the wilderness, yet news had traveled to Jericho about what happened in Egypt. Obviously, those people made it. You see what I'm saying? So it's, it's very, <laughs> disobedience is a bad thing. So look at verse 4. Do not say in your, there it is, guys, heart, when Yahweh your Elohim has driven them out before you, because of my righteousness, Yahweh has brought me in to possess this land. In other words, when you're given the victory, don't look to you. In fact, let me say this, because this is something that God has, has brought up to me lately, making me realize. Anytime that God uses me in a situation and I'm like, whoa, that was cool, that kind of thing, I forget to praise Him. And that is sad. That is sad until it's not when I'm trying to unwind and I'm you know, laying there in bed trying to go to sleep. I'm saying, gosh, I didn't thank God for this opportunity or this interaction or this conversation. And Wow, I need to be retrained in thankfulness badly. So notice, when you're brought in this land and you see all these greater people and all their fortified cities and all these giants fall down before you and you are given the victory so that you now can say, this land is ours. Don't attribute it to your own righteousness. And notice what he says after that. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations. There it is. Don't miss it. Here's the reason. Here's the reason why the conquest is taking place in this way. It is because of the wickedness of these nations that Yahweh is dispossessing them before you. In other words, don't let your pride become the focus of why God is doing things with you. It has nothing to do with your goodness. It has everything to do with their wickedness. Now, does everybody see how that could, could strip you to a point of humility? Yes? Good. Because that's what it's supposed to do. Notice what he says after that. Verse 5. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess their land. In other words, Israel, you don't deserve it. 
You are just acting as an instrument of judgment on my behalf because these people are exceedingly wicked. But look where he takes it. He says that you're going to possess this land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that Yahweh your Elohim is driving them out before you in order, watch this, in order to confirm the, what's it say? Oath. Everybody see, anybody in your translation have a little number or something next to that? Look in your margin. What's it say? Word. Notice. The oath that you made. It's all about your word. Don't miss sight of this, guys. God's word is preeminent in all things. Notice what he says. Uh, God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the word, the oath, which Yahweh swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Where did Moses go with this? What is it? He went to the past. And what is this covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Israel? Jacob. What is it? The Abrahamic covenant. And what is the important thing about the Abrahamic covenant? It's unconditional. It is one-sided. Remember, whenever he said, take those animals, split them down in the half, set them on the side, and then what did he do? He plugged in Abraham's sleep number and put him down. And then a flaming pot... And a fiery torch passed through the pieces. That's the equivalent of going, we agree, except it's a one-sided handshake. Abraham, here's what I'm going to do. And you may send to the Dickens to an unbelievable degree. I'm still going to do it because I said it. In fact, the actual language there in agreeing to the covenant without Abraham involved is... Let me be damned if I don't do it. That's the idea. That's how strong and forceful that Hebrew verbiage is in that situation. He is literally putting his reputation and very self on the line for fulfillment there. So when we talk about the importance of God's word, God's promise, and notice that Moses brings it back to and plugs it into the Abrahamic covenant, immediately all the Jews would grab onto this, yes, that's right. We have the unconditional promises of God that He will do as He said He will do as far as land, seed, and blessing. We have that. It is sure as the day is long, it will never go away. Everybody got that? Okay, so notice. He draws it back to that, verse 6. Know them. It is not because of your righteousness that Yahweh your Elohim is giving you this good land to possess. Now stop. Has Moses made his point clear? He very much has, but notice, he pulls out the dagger and gets them with it. For you are a stubborn people. Everybody see the little notation next to stubborn? What's it say? Stiff-necked. This is a compound word. Hebrew students, don't kill me. Koshesh oref is what it is. Koshesh means hard, cruel obstinate everybody get it tough as nails bitter maybe i don't know might be an idea that we would take from that and the other one is your neck or the back of your neck your nape you have an obstinate nape right here in other words at every turn you refuse to be worked with isn't it incredible that god didn't just say 
you know what? Enough. I mean, people do that with dogs pretty quickly, right? You're going to keep peeing on the rug, you got to go. Takes a little bit longer with kids, right? <laughs> Usually four years. We're coming up on it. I'm just kidding. Our kid's a good boy. But you wonder sometimes. Verse 7. Notice what he says. Remember, do not forget. Notice the positive and the negative. Remember, do not forget how you provoked Yahweh, your Elohim, to wrath in the wilderness. From the day that you left the land of Egypt until you arrived at this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Can anybody think about some of the rebellion that took place? We want water. We're going to die. And if that wasn't bad enough, what do they always add to their complaints? We want something to eat. Gave him manna from heaven. We're tired of manna. Gave him quail. Right? We're going to die out here. Here's an amazing oasis in the middle of nowhere that everybody can drink and have their fill. And what is it always tacked onto? What's always tacked onto their complaint? It was so much better in Egypt. Why didn't you just leave us there? Now we mock them because we have 2020 vision looking back. You fools, what's wrong with you? Have you ever been to a point in your Christian life where you're thinking, man, it was so much easier to be a pagan? I promise you it's not any different from that sin that Israel was crying out against God. Because notice that it's all rooted in unbelief. Do you really believe that it was better for you to not have eternal life than to have eternal life? Do you really believe that it was better for you to not have the indwelling spirit than to have the indwelling spirit? To not have atonement for your sin applied to you rather than having it applied to you? To still have your sins on you without forgiveness because you had not believed and received the forgiveness of sins? To know that when you died, you were going to experience a second death after dying the first time as if one death wasn't bad enough? You see what I'm saying? But because of our circumstances and losing sight of all that God has promised to us in Christ, we forget it and we make such foolish statements as, sure was way different when I had more friends. Really? Your friends were terrible. Anybody have terrible friends before you believed in the Lord? Yeah. The music was better. I'll give you that, man. Whew. Woo. Gosh. Why couldn't Pink Floyd get saved? I don't know. But seriously, good grief. But when we make responses like that, we're no better than Israel. We have just participated in almost unconscious unbelief. And it's dangerous. Not any different here. Verse 8, even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And the Lord was so angry with you that He would have destroyed you. In other words, and, and understand this, guys, because this is how weighty this is, and we don't have time to get in the Horeb thing. We're actually out of time now. We're going to look at it because there's a ton of stuff surrounding it. It's the whole idea with the golden calf. But here, here's what's going on here. Think about this. God who is infinite and has all power 
because of their rebellion, was so pushed to the point where he wanted to destroy these people he had made a promise to. He wanted to wipe them out so he never had to deal with them again. You know, the only thing that kept him from doing it was what? No. His promise. His word is what kept him from annihilating a full nation of people that he had been working with. But get this, guys. That's the power of his word. That's his word. We are bearers of his word. His word is to dwell in us richly. All things are to be measured against the word. We are to cling to his word. His word is to saturate everything that we do and be our very rule of life. That's why it's so important. Because the damning wrath of God when it is flowing out from him and he wants to completely be done with the people by crushing them underneath his feet because of how much they hate him and replace him with gold. And because his word takes center stage, his anger subsides. We're privileged people. They didn't have the New Testament. We do. We're privileged people. Pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that it is sure and trustworthy and certain. Thank you, God, that you love us. Sometimes we probably be qualified as stiff-necked people as well. Or rebellious. Or maybe we have just almost naturally, which is the problem, uh, resorted back to what it was like before we knew you. How dangerous all of that is. And how desperately we need your mercy and your grace all the time. Thank you for loving us because we are so unlovable and being good to us because that's just who you are. It's in Jesus' name, amen.